The message from God's Word comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're still going through the book of Samuel, and will be for some time. The book of Judges, right before this particular narrative in Samuel, closes by saying that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's bad. And then in 1 Samuel 3, we hear that the Word of God was rare in those days. Either by prophets or the teaching of the priests, the Word of God was rare. So with the decline of God's Word and the decline in worship, Israel had fallen into a great darkness. And in chapter 4, last time we studied 1 Samuel, we saw that Israel was defeated, all of the priests were killed, And the ark of God was captured. It seemed a hopeless situation. Please remain seated. I'll read the entire chapter. But hear God's holy inspired word this evening. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all those who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God, of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we certainly come to you once again and often asking for your help to understand your text, to submit ourselves to the instructions therein, and to be changed. 
We thank you that you have given us your scriptures, and we pray that you be glorified in them. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the sermon is The Defeated God. You see, God was defeated, it seemed, in the Philistines' minds. The holy God was defeated. He seemed defeated. Look at the first two verses. The Philistines captured the ark of God. They had killed the priests of God. Even Eli had died. They brought the ark of God from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, into their own temple, the temple of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. This was common practice in the ancient Near East. If you've ever been to Rome, you know that there's an arch called the Arch of Titus. Titus was the general who sacked Rome in AD 70, destroyed it. They took everything out of the temple and they carried all of the things from the temple that were valuable to Rome as trophies, put them in their own temples. And you can still, on the Arch of Titus, you can see pictures of a menorah, um, some other things of relics of the, the temple, engraved on the Arch of Titus. This is very common, what the Philistines are doing here. They thought, you see, that Dagon had gained a great victory over the God of Israel, didn't they? They thought, our God is powerful and mighty. Now, they didn't want to offend the God of the Israelites too much, so they put him kind of maybe reverently into the house of their God as well. It's not smart to anger any God unnecessarily. What they didn't realize was that their God wasn't a God at all. There was only one God. And the ark wasn't God. The ark was a symbol of God's presence. So they placed the ark of God in the temple of Dagon. Dagon probably being an idol, a statue, maybe my size or smaller even. They placed the ark there with this idol as a sign of victory over God. As I thought about this, I thought, how common is it today for us to hear on the news or in magazines or in the media that the Christian God is dead or defeated. No sooner do you open the paper than you hear some new proclamation from some scientist or some philosopher that Christianity really has been ineffective. It's finally over. The God of Israel, the God of the Christians, has failed. And Christians, those who still have faith in God, are probably a silly, stupid people. Science or modern medicine or philosophy have proved beyond a doubt that God doesn't exist. He's been completely conquered. He's defeated. And sometimes we feel that way. If you watch too much television, you'll quickly feel that way. Feel that the world has defeated our God. Why is that? Well, part of the answer might be that we have often, in our generation at least, tried to make God useful rather than worshiping God. You remember the Israelites thought they would do that with the ark. Let's bring the ark into our camp, and then we'll have a great victory. 
They thought they would use God for their purposes or give God a hand in defeating this enemy. We may have done something like that, putting God in a convenient box to make the gospel as inoffensive as possible, acceptable to all, and in the long run we've seemingly made it a shambles. But our God is bigger than our failed efforts. Even though it feels like our God is defeated and we're all running home in disgrace as the Israelites did, Our God is still victorious. He's not defeated. What is the problem? David Wells' foundational work on modern culture is called God in the Wasteland. I highly recommend it. You'll love it. Here's what he says. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. This happens when we leave the scriptures. When we try to make God something that's palatable. When we try to make the cross inoffensive. When we try to make the gospel something that's easy to swallow. It's unnecessary. God needs no help. But when we use God for our purposes, rather than striving to be used for His, we can expect to feel defeated. When we create a gospel where God waits on man instead of man humbly waiting upon God, we will feel defeated. The result of the church's failures, I believe, to uphold a godly standard, the result of the Christian's failures to reject worldliness, each one individually, is that the church and God feel to be a wasteland of defeat and dismay at times as worldly science and philosophy and government and economics and culture with all of the talking heads that are so smart stand victorious over our defeated God. So it would seem. Sometimes we are like the wife of Phineas. We think the glory of God really has departed his church. We've missed our opportunity. We've mismanaged the church. And God has left us never to return. But the reality is God is never defeated. God is only ever victorious. Nothing happens apart from his plan. Everything that has happened in the 20th century and the 21st century is according to his plan. And it's for his glory. Out of darkness comes light and the light will be great. So what does God do? He does what he does in verses 3 through five, God establishes his dominance. We have two male dogs in our house now. It's funny to watch them. One will go pee on a flower. The other one will go over and pee right on top of the same flower. What's going on? They're trying to establish dominance. That's the pecking order. Who's really the boss here? And whether it's two dogs or two running bucks or two boys on a playground or two heads of state... You see the same interaction. Who's really in charge here? Who's got the power? The people of Ashdod rose early the next day, and Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. That's hilarious. 
If that doesn't make you laugh, if God doesn't have some kind of ironic sense of humor, then I don't know what that is. They had to pick up their God and put him back on the shelf because he had fallen down and prostrated himself before the ark of God. That's funny. And then the next day, the same thing happens, only the head and the hands were broken off. Is that what it says? They were broken off? It says they were cut off. God cut off the head and the hands of Dagon. Why would he do that? Well, back in the ancient Near East, when you went to battle, and it's still this way, after you defeat your enemy, it's perfectly fine to cut off the head of your enemy. David did it to Goliath, remember? It's a sign of ultimate shame. You've been killed. I'm going to cut off your head. I'm going to cut off your hands. You are ultimately and finally defeated, never to rise again. And who knows, but that the Philistines may have done that to the Israelites just a few days before. Killed the Israelites, shamefully cutting off their heads and their hands. And God saw that. You think he saw each person who got their head cut off and their hands cut off? Yes. And what does he do? He cuts off Dagon's head and hands, this statue, and all that's left is the trunk. I love that. All that's left is the trunk. So he just has this little block of whatever with no head, no hands, bowing down before the ark of God. Their God is seen to be the defeated God, isn't he? It's not the Almighty God who was defeated. It was their God who was defeated before the ark of God. And the ark of God, of course, wasn't God himself. The ark of God is a symbol of his presence. John Calvin said, it's a most sure pledge through which Israel was made more sure of the presence and the favor of God. We see that in Joshua chapter 3. By this you shall know that the living God is among you. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of the earth is going down before you. The ark was the pledge that God would dwell with his people. The ark was called the ark of the testimony or the covenants. It contained the covenant document, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. It was seen kind of as the foot of his throne, the ark was. So Dagon is prostrate before prostrate before the feet of God, completely defeated and broken. I think the application for us is clear. When we feel like we described already, when we feel defeated, we need to remember the truth. The victory really is won. The battle is won. In our lives, in all of history, we know the outcome. Our God wins. And this was evident from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell. And God decided to align himself with Eve and all the godly line for all posterity. The defeat was made revealed to us of the enemy. The serpent would not win the great spiritual battle, which was now made evident to us, was always and certainly and surely won. And now we knew it. No matter what the situation in the world would look like, even before the great flood, God was not surprised. Victory was certain. No matter how victorious the world looks today or how defeated the church may feel, God is victorious. 
victory is certain. We're not called to march forward with swords and guns. and We're called to stand, to stand in the hope of Jesus Christ. We're called, after having done everything, to withstand the attacks of the enemy and then to stand. So the victory truly is won, but there still is a battle to fight. We still have to fight the battle. We still have to stand up and put on the armor of God to put on Christ, to trust in his righteousness, his salvation, his truth, to have faith in God, to speak the gospel to others. It will be difficult and painful for the Christian on earth to stand, but we're called to do that. I'm reminded of Churchill, who at the beginning of World War II, right after he was made prime minister, his maiden speech as prime minister, he said to the parliament and to the country, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And they loved it. Why? Because they like war? No, because they knew that they would come out victorious. That was their hope. We have a more certain certain hope because our hope is based on what has already been accomplished. The victory is assured. I can say with complete and perfect (laughs) confidence... That no matter what you think you see on the political landscape or in the church or the worldwide church or the international scene, no matter what you feel like is wrong, our God wins, period. Our God will be victorious, period. His church will be victorious over the world and the devil. Never doubt that. Not only that, he has already won. Our hope is not only that something will be consummated in the future. Yes, we want Christ to return and make all things right. Our Christian hope is also right now. It has nothing to do with the next church growth strategy or how to find the lost demographic in our culture or the newest way to reach our culture or the the latest innovations of the social gospel or fill in the blank. Our hope is in the present kingdom of Jesus Christ, the victorious King of kings, who will come, but who is already penetrating right into our age. How does he do that? With us, with the Holy Spirit, with his word, the very common and ordinary means of grace. When Christ died and rose again, he defeated sin and death. And all the kingdoms of the earth were made prostrate before him. The ruler of this, of the air, Paul calls him. At that moment, the, the Dagon of the world fell prostrate before Jesus. So we still see evil in the world, but the victory's already won. And it's not a theoretical victory. It's not like we just know that it's coming, but we don't really know right now that anything is real. It's actually the most practical and personal of any knowledge about God you can have. Christ penetrates into this world every day as he dwells in the hearts of his saints. This is powerful because it makes the meaningless meaninglessness of our lives, the hopelessness of postmodern thought burst forth in meaning and in hope. As every day, we rely and trust 
in Christ. David Wells again writes, The future, the age to come, is already known and is even now reaching back into the present. In time, hope, which is the result of God's love, reaches out into eternity. The victory of Christ is already ours, but it's not fully realized. This is true. Dagon does lie prostrate before the church. But using that particular story as an analogy, Christ is coming back to cut off the head and the hands as well. The victory is certain, so we're called to stand. Stand in the hope of our salvation. Trust the promises of God. They are true. The glory of the Lord has not departed from his people, from this church. Rather, his kingdom has come. Finally, let's look at verses 6 through 12. We see that even though God felt or seemed defeated, and the people thought he was defeated, that God needs no help. This is seen in the heavy hand of the Lord. It's in verse 6. It's also in verse 11. The heavy hand of the Lord. Remember Samuel is using this word heavy and the word glory kind of in a, in a paradoxical or ironic way. The Hebrew root is the same. It's made up of the same letters that make the word kavod. Kavod can mean heavy. It can mean glory, depending on where the accents are. The glory of the Lord was seen to a departed Israel. You remember Eli, rather than proclaiming God's glory, he was just heavy. He was heavy in his own self-indulgence. Now we see that the glory of the Lord is seen to have departed Israel. And now the glory was heavy against the Philistines, against Dagon and their God. We should all remember that God didn't need anyone's help to bring about victory over the Philistines. He did it by himself. This is his kingdom. This is his universe. You really think he needs you to do anything? Of course, we are privileged and called to stand up and be soldiers in his army, yes. But he doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to, to achieve a victory. He's not waiting for you. He's not improved by your efforts or anyone's efforts. His kingdom is not in need of your sustaining or helping hands. He's all sufficient unto himself. Yes, in his providence, he calls us to work, to serve. And he uses our efforts for his glory, but he doesn't need us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. So, when we look at the landscape of our world, it's, I believe, easy to be distracted from the truth. That God is in control. The Israelites, their worship was corrupted. The battle was a great defeat. The priests of God were killed. The ark was captured. We say those things, we rattle them off, but can you really imagine the effect on the Israelite nation, the people? The priests died. All three of the priests are dead. The ark is gone. 30,000 men lay dead. They're not coming home. Families are mourning. The Philistines are completely dominant. What despair they must have felt. 
What despair people in Ukraine must feel right now. What despair many in America feel when you look at the corruption and greed in Washington, D.C. But this is God's plan. He will not fail to do everything that pleases him on this earth. Nothing can hinder him at all. Nothing. We don't understand everything, but we know that this is part of his plan. Look at Isaiah chapter 40 with me. I'm going to go through it verse by verse for just a few minutes before we close. Starting in verse 6. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. The context of Isaiah 40 is Isaiah preaching and prophesying to a people who are about to be destroyed. Maybe not in their generation, maybe the generation after. But they were under threats of destruction. The northern kingdom had already been destroyed, I believe. So God says to them, all people are like grass. The word of our God stands forever. Trust in the word of God. Then he talks about his own greatness. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Our God is a mighty king. Do you really think he's not going to rule and dominate whatever situation may feel like it's gone backwards? He will do whatever he pleases. Verse 12, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's marked off the heavens with a span? Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? This is our God. This is, he's saying, I created everything. It's all mine. And it's all very little compared to my greatness. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? To whom did the Lord consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? So you see these nations gathering around you, nation of Israel, and you feel like maybe God isn't really smart. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's allowing these people to oppress you. And God says, really? Where do you think I went to school? I didn't have to go to school. I know everything. I'm doing everything I want. My wisdom is much farther beyond yours than you can ever imagine. And you're worried about these nations that are opposing you? Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. You're concerned about all the nations? You need to be concerned about the Almighty God. The nations are nothing before him. You fix your eyes on God. Why? Do you not know? 
Have you not heard? He sits above the circle of the earth, verse 22, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You're really concerned about the king of Assyria. You're really concerned about the president of Russia. You're really concerned about any person who's a ruler on the earth. He rules only because God has put him in power for this time to accomplish his purpose, period. So we know all this about God. How does it impact me? Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He says in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So our almighty, powerful God, with all wisdom, who does all that he pleases, he holds us as lambs close to his bosom. He speaks comfort to us. We have but to look to Christ and trust him. Today, and no matter what the future holds, look to Christ and trust him. God has not left you. He is not defeated. He may allow you to go your own way. He may even allow you to go astray for a time. But if you're his, he will always bring you back, whether through discipline or hardship or any other means, only to reveal his own glorious salvation at just the right time. And he may lead you, whether you're doing anything wrong, into very difficult circumstances. In Exodus chapter 14, we see God lead the Israelite people after they left Egypt. Where did he lead them? He left them into this little kind of boxy place in the desert where there's a mountain on one side and there's a sea on the other and right behind them are the Egyptian army. And they're stuck. They can't go over the mountain. They can't go through the sea. And the Egyptians want to kill them. All their firstborn sons are dead. And Moses said, and I say to you, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Is that our God? Yes, that's our God. He's not surprised by current events. He's not surprised by pandemics. He's not surprised by economic collapse or corrupt government. All these things are used by God to display his glory in the earth. He's the one who holds the universe in his hand. But the ultimate example of this truth, and this is the conclusion, is that we see this in the redemption of Jesus Christ. He came to the Israelite people and to the world. He was a poor and humble man. He had a cloud over his whole ministry, his whole life, because of the nature of his birth. He's a bastard child, is what they would say, we think. He had no home. He wandered with 12 kind of misfits who were his disciples. He was despised and rejected 
by men. He was betrayed by his own disciple. He was condemned by those he came to save. He was handed over to the Gentiles to be beaten and tortured and finally crucified. As he hung naked on the cross, he was mocked and spit upon by his own people. His broken body was exposed for the whole world to see. And then darkness literally descends on the whole earth as the wrath of God comes down upon his son. The disciples sank into despair and hopelessness. The demons must have rejoiced. Their victory was complete. Only it was not. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And the very bad, horrible things that were meant to bring victory to the enemy actually brought great victory to God. It was always planned from the beginning of the world that he would suffer for his people. He won a cosmic victory, the ultimate victory. And for those who put their trust in him, we too can come into the Holy of Holies and worship the Almighty God, have communion with the Father of lights. So when you think that the enemy has defeated you, has defeated the church, has defeated our God, our God's not defeated. The reality is the enemy is already defeated. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Rest in his promises. He will never leave you or forsake you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are encouraged We're encouraged by the history that we read in your scriptures. We're encouraged that you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Now, today, we know that life on this planet is difficult, and it always has been. We know that evil men seem to gain and and rule and prosper. And yet, it's only by your grace, your common grace, that you do not destroy them this very moment. Rather, you are using them. Let us always remember to fix our eyes upon you, that the things of earth would grow dim as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us remember to give you glory, to hail your name, the King of kings and Lord of lords, in Jesus' name, amen.